Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And today's topic uh, comes directly from the fact that the subject of it showed up on American Horror Story Coven recently and almost... Immediately after they introduced this genuine historical figure as a character a couple of weeks back, we immediately got requests to cover it. Yeah, I basically got to work and people were already asking about it and I hadn't even seen the episode yet. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I guess there's an Axeman. Uh, Spoiler, that's what the episode's about today. Yeah, the Axeman of New Orleans. And while it made for great TV, perhaps the most shocking part is actually how few liberties the show creators had to take with this story. Often when you see a historical figure incorporated into modern entertainment, it gets really, you know, uh, altered and fluffed up. and But uh, there's some pretty literal one-to-one translation on this one, yeah. which is really sort of shocking in and of itself. Well, and just in case the show completely diverges from reality, uh-huh. uh, we are recording this basically after the Axeman's first appearance. Right. And there's uh, at the end, we can talk about what obviously is not accurate in that because it, it does take a turn that we would... Uh, not be able to have in actual uh, history. But most of the plot was written for the show creators nearly 100 years ago in terms of what they covered on the program. And the Axeman story actually has a few different potential starting points. Uh, although we're going to start at the cases that are generally considered like the official Axeman timeline of events. Uh, there are some that happened prior to that that get linked up, and we'll talk about those at the end. Uh, and because the case was never solved, there is uncertainty about some similar crimes that may or may not have been related and may or may not have been the work of the Axeman. And also, just as a, a side note going into this, um, if you are following up on this and looking anything up online, you will see it spelled two ways, A-X-E-M-A-N and A-X-M-A-N. Uh the Axeman himself, if uh, his one writing where he self-references, is in fact by him and not by an imposter or a hoaxer. They use the one without the E. But you'll see it written both ways in perfectly valid historical accounts. So we're going to start off with where the murders that are generally considered part of, quote, the Axeman murders began. And that is uh, May 22nd of 1918. So Andrew Maggio had gotten a draft notice, and so he went out and drank a lot. He came home and passed out in the rooms that he shared with his brother Jake. Uh, There are accounts that suggest that the two of them had actually been out drinking together. At 4 a.m. on the morning of the 23rd, Jake was awakened by groaning noises coming from the other side of the wall, which uh, was the home inhabited by another brother, Joseph, and his wife, Catherine. Joseph and Catherine ran a grocery and bar room that was connected to their living quarters. And that was a pretty common layout at this time. Yeah, one of the uh, items we'll point to in the show notes has a a picture from the um, the New Orleans Times picky unit at the time. And they actually have a it's a very simple box layout of how most of these stores were set up where the store was in the front and one to three rooms were separated in the back half of the building. And those are like the living area. So uh Jake roused 
the drunken Andrew with some difficulty after he was unable to get a response from his brother or sister-in-law when he knocked on the wall that adjoined their two room or that connected their two rooms to check on them that he couldn't get them to answer. What the brothers found was evidence of a break-in. A wooden panel had been chiseled out of the kitchen door and left on the ground outside with the chisel lying on top of it. And when Jake and Andrew reached the couple's bedroom, Catherine was already dead. She was sprawled partially across her husband, and Joseph was alive but had multiple very bad head wounds. Uh, Joseph died before police could arrive. Police found a pile of menswear in the bathroom along with an axe. Uh, the location of this axe has been recorded really inconsistently in different sources. It's been cited as being in the bathtub, near the rear doorstep, and in the crawl space under the house. Uh, and all of these have been named as the place where the axe was found. Uh, and just to address the menswear in the bathroom, you will read about that being very different things. Uh, some accounts say it was actually uh, like Joseph's clothes or clothes belonging to the couple. Some hint that they think the axe man actually changed completely out of the clothes he was wearing during the murder to another set of clothes to leave without blood on him. Uh, so that's, to my mind, a little bit hazy still because accounts do vary quite a bit. And also found on the bed was a straight razor. And the coroner's report indicated that the axe had been the primary cause of death for Joseph, but that the killer had likely hit Catherine on the head with the axe and then used the razor to nearly decapitate her. Uh, and her estimated time of death was between 2 and 3 a.m. Just a block away, the message Mrs. Maggio will set up tonight, just like Mrs. Tony, was found written on the sidewalk with chalk in the sort of childish handwriting. Uh, initially, this particular clue was really baffling to investigators. Because a neighbor had actually witnessed Andrew outside that night when he was still inebriated, he and Jake were both taken in for questioning. And Jake was released after a day, but Andrew remained in custody. And unfortunately, several things started to make Andrew look extremely suspicious to the police. The first is that it was his razor blade. He was a barber, and he claimed he had brought it home for maintenance. Uh... Another thing is that the safe in Joseph and Catherine's house was open, but it didn't show a sign of forced entry or robbery. Money and valuables that were nearby were left completely untouched. And this, combined with the discovery that the axe had actually belonged to the victims, led investigators to believe that the killer knew the layout of the house and possibly knew the family. So the idea that it was a family member kind of uh, did not help Andrew's case. And that it was a, a murder and not a robbery. Yeah. Andrew's story was also kind of changing. Yeah. Uh, he didn't initially mention it, but he later said he had seen a man going into his brother's house at about 1.30 in the morning. This contradicted his answers to the police questioning and an interview that he gave a newspaper saying he'd been too drunk to even hear any of the noise coming from his brother's home. Yeah, so he went from saying he was way too inebriated to notice anything to going, oh yeah, but I did see that one guy. Uh, but eventually that was kind of it. They didn't really come up with any additional evidence and Andrew was released. So that is the first murder and it really kind of gets the most detail in a lot of accounts, I think, because it, it was the earliest one. Even so, and we're at a time when there were newspapers and records, uh, we'll find as we go on that the records get fuzzy. There wasn't always great accounting. But we're going to pause before we get to the second incident and talk about our sponsor. So let's get back to axe murders. 
Oh, yes. Always fun. So the second incident happened just a few weeks after the Maggio slayings. Uh, and a delivery man in this instance discovered this event while he was trying to drop off bread at grocer Lewis Bessemer's store in the seventh ward. Uh, and this is another one of those cases that I just mentioned where the details are not always consistent. Bessemer gets spelled uh, uh, several different ways. Sometimes it's spelled B-E-S-E-M-E-R, sometimes B-O-S-S-U-M-E-R, sometimes B-O-S-U-M-E-R. There are, is a lot of variation. So when Bessemer did not meet the delivery man, John Zanka, at the store's door the way he normally did, Zanka went around to the side door. Bessemer opened the door and he was covered in blood and said that he had been attacked and he directed Zanka into the bedroom. Uh, There, a woman who was presumed to be Bessemer's wife was sprawled on the bed with a really deep head wound, although she was still alive at that point. Against Besmer's wishes, Zanka called the police. Uh, Besmer has had wanted to call his doctor instead, which is kind of odd. I think they should call both. <laughs> yes, <laughs> make both the calls. Just as in the Maggio murders, a door panel had been removed with a chisel and then placed on the ground with the chisel on top of it. Besmer's own axe has been, had been used to commit this assault, and it was found in the bathroom. And again. No valuables had been taken. So while both of the victims were connected to a grocery, uh, their ethnicity was different. Um, the Maggios were Italian and Bessemer was Polish. Uh, initially, a new employee of Bessemer's store was detained, but he was soon released. Similar to the Andrew Maggio situation, though, he had told some conflicting stories to police. And this kind of leads me to go out on a limb and guess that fear was the significant motivator in some of these wishy-washy stories of the suspects, that they were probably just terrified and didn't, they wanted to say something that would clear their name, even if it wasn't accurate. Uh, but they did release that man because he didn't, there wasn't enough evidence. So the victim, the female victim, was Anna Harriet Lowe. She turned out to be either Bessemer's mistress or his common-law wife, depending on who is talking. And uh, she told different stories to the investigators before she died of her wounds. Her first account said that she had been attacked by a man of mixed race, but she did not stick to that story. The second account was that it had actually been Bessemer and that he was a spy and part of a German conspiracy. This, combined with letters that were found in his home in a number of different languages, got federal investigators involved, and Bessemer was arrested, but was soon released. Yes, so remember, this is during World War One, so that's why to say he was a German spy got a lot of uh, hubbub happening very quickly. It's a big deal. Yeah. Uh, in a bizarre move, this particular incident has so many weird layers to it. Uh, Bessemer actually asked the police if he could investigate his own case regarding the attack, like if they would make him the detective on the case. Uh, and this, combined with Anna's strange story and Besmer's reluctance to call the police in the first place, eventually it led police to believe that there was actually a domestic dispute at the heart of this second incident. Uh, and Besmer ended up being arrested again and this time held on murder charges. Sometime down the road, he was, however, acquitted. The next attack was not at the home of a grocer, but a businessman. Uh, And it also broke from the typical Axeman scenario in a few other ways as well. When Edward Schneider got home from work on August 5th, 1918, he found his pregnant wife on the bed with a serious head wound. 
She was unconscious, but she was still alive. And she was immediately rushed to the hospital. And while Mrs. Schneider did recover and she did successfully deliver a daughter, uh, she really couldn't help police investigators with many details of the attack. They had really been hoping that she would have a witness account. But she had been asleep when the intruder had entered the house, and she only recalled waking up to see him by the bed as the axe came swinging toward her. It's terrifying. Yes. Although some uh, of the police investigators thought that she had actually been hit with, I can't remember if it was a large, heavy jar or a lamp that was near the bed. So whether or not she was actually hit with an axe actually even came into question. As in the other attacks, nothing of value had been taken out of the house. But that and her account of an axe being involved are really the only connections with the other Maggio and Bessemer cases. Unlike in those crimes, there was no door panel that had been chiseled out of the door. There wasn't a male victim, and the target was completely removed from the grocery trade. Which just caused some people to wonder if it really was the same yeah. perpetrator. Before we get to the next one, so many axe events. We're going to pause one more time and take a word from our sponsor of Tracy's Game. Let's do that. Alrighty. Yes. Uh, so just five days after Mrs. Schneider was attacked, this time a barber named Joseph Romano. So he was Italian, uh, similar to some of the others, but not a grocer, even though you will often see it said as he attacked Italian grocers. But there's a lot more variation than that. Uh, and he was attacked in his home. But this time there were two witnesses, his nieces, Pauline and Mary Bruno, who lived with him. They were awakened by loud thumping sounds from their uncle's room. According to some accounts, a man fled when Pauline saw him and screamed. Other versions of the story have the man already fleeing the house when the girls saw him. Uh, and Joseph had suffered several blows to the head and he died from his wounds. Although he did tell the girls before he died to um, call for help. So this murder was more similar to the previous attacks. There was the chiseled door panel with the chisel at the entry. Uh, and by this time, as you can imagine, New Orleans was in a panic. Uh, there were constant calls to police precincts about suspicious figures and attempted intrusions. And some of these seemed to be based in truth, but others really seemed to be the result of panic and fear leading to mistaken assessments of situations. Like they were constantly getting a call of, there's a weird person in my yard. There's someone at my back door. That reminds me of the eight million suspicious package uh, yeah. calls that, that police departments were getting, like in the wake of the Boston Marathon bombing. Yeah, everyone's extra cautious. So you're noting everything that stands out. It's not even necessarily that you're, I, I think some people tend to assume that fear is causing people to make things up. And while that may have been the case in some of them, you're also just noticing things that you wouldn't normally notice because you are at a heightened sense of awareness. Hypervigilance is going on. (laughs) So the mythology of the Axeman started to morph as these stories were shared and spread. Uh, A mishmash of true and false details formed this patchwork that was kind of difficult to pick apart. Yeah, police were responding to calls and some things would be in place that suggested the Axeman, like some doors looked like they had been tampered with, but not always. Sometimes people couldn't tell if it maybe was just a prankster trying to scare people or if it could actually be the Axeman. Or a copycat. Yeah, or a copycat. But while the city was on edge uh, and in this state of hypervigilance, 
the last several months of 1918 did not have any uh, more recorded attacks of the Axeman. Although there were, as I said, a few instances of chisels and axes being found near people's back doors uh, when police were called. So we're actually going to break this one into two episodes uh, because, you know, it's a lot of killing to put in just one. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and then another person was murdered by an axe-wielding madman. Yeah. Uh, so we are going to pause here, and then our next episode will pick right back up, because then things really get interesting and really tie into the American part of the story, story that mm-hmm. appeared on American Horror Story. Do you have listener mail before we go? I do. Uh, this one is from our listener, Amy. And it is uh, in reference to our episode on Rudolph II. She says, I've been an avid listener for some time now, especially since I have a boring job and need some levity. I've always wanted to write, but never had a good topic that seemed like something I could write about. But I was very excited when you did the podcast on Rudolph II. I'm an American who lived in Prague, Czech Republic, for 12 years, uh, from the 1st to the 12th grade. And one of my favorite parts of the Prague Castle was actually created by Rudolph. One of his many eccentric pursuits was collecting alchemists to discover how to turn ordinary objects into gold. He collected them all on one street, which developed the nickname of Golden Lane because of the alchemists. All of the buildings are oddly short and skinny. It almost looks like a miniature lane rather than a normal street. And the buildings are also all bright colors, which was unusual for that time. As a kid, I always looked forward to walking down Golden Lane and looking at the cute houses. Unfortunately, you now have to pay to walk down it. At the end of the lane, there's actually a toy museum now that has a fascinating progression of what Barbies have looked like through the ages. Okay, I would be all over that museum. Uh, Across the attics of a few of the houses, they have also put in a crossbow range for tourists. My older brother enjoyed this a lot. I now wish I had done it as well. Uh, I just noticed that the coaster that my hot chocolate is resting on is a picture of Golden Lane, a present from my mom. I'm glad my hometown received a bit of the spotlight. Keep up the wonderful work. Uh, So cool to hear about. I had never heard about the Golden Lane, even though I have friends that lived in Prague. Uh, I guess they were holding out on me. But thank you, Amy, for telling us that, because that's a really cool bit that I would not yeah. have known. I want to go to Prague quite badly. Uh, every time I see pictures of it, I think it looks super cool. So if you would like to share information with us, you can do so at our email address, which is historypodcast at discovery.com, or you can connect with us at facebook.com slash historyclassstuff. You can connect with us on Twitter at Missed in History and at MissedInHistory.tumblr.com. And you can visit us on Pinterest, where I'm going to have to figure out fun ways to include images of axe murder. to axemen. But I'm going to do it. Uh, if you would like to learn more about what we are talking about, you can go to our website and do a search for the uh, word serial killer and you will get how serial killers work. If you would like to learn about that or anything else your mind can conjure, you can do that at our website, which is HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Netflix streams TV shows and movies directly to your home, saving you time, money, and hassle. As a Netflix member, you can instantly watch TV episodes and movies streaming directly to your PC, Mac, or right to your TV with your Xbox 360, PS3, or Nintendo Wii console, plus Apple devices, Kindle, and Nook. Get a free 30-day trial membership. Go to www.netflix.com and sign up now.